last one standing wins. <laughs> Professional Podcast. Drinking from human skulls. A professional podcast. Greetings once again. Tis I, Doni, your host for another episode of Drinking from Human Skulls. And it's going to be a doozy. This I promise you. And today we're going to be talking about the origins of the coronavirus, something that if you were to talk about a year ago, you would have been labeled racist for suggesting that this could have come from a lab in Wuhan. And now it seems the entire media apparatus and all the important people who should be weighing in on this have flipped and turned around 180 degrees And now pretty much everyone who's really in the know on this topic is saying that there's virtually no way that this virus could have emerged naturally. And, you know, I think a lot of those people don't quite know the extent of a Chinese wet market. I've seen them in person. And let me tell you, there ain't no health standards there. And there are animals mixing that shouldn't be mixing. And so if factory farming gets us the flu and many varieties of that every year, then I think it's still plausible that, you know, funny things can happen in wet markets. However, the research and the analysis from the experts is very compelling, and we're going to go through it today. There's a lot being made about gain-of-function research as funded by Dr. Fauci, best doctor in the world through another partner of his called the EcoHealth Alliance. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. But I want to say at the front, if you've been hearing about this story, there's a lot being made about this money that Dr. Fauci has granted and has been subgranted, etc., to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And I just want to make it clear up front, if China and the CCP and all of its state-sponsored apparatuses want to create a virus, they'll do so with their own copious treasure trove of cash. They don't need money from the American government. So I don't think it's very likely that Dr. Fauci is actually a criminal uh, culprit in this case. I think he's just very negligent, very naive, and very, very bad at his job to suggest that The Chinese authorities, especially those under CCP supervision, can be trusted is something out of a fairy tale. Look, Chinese people are wonderful. I can tell you that without even a single hesitation. My wife is Chinese and I have met numerous, countless Chinese people who are absolutely wonderful. The CCP, however, let's just say that they are not in that category. I don't want to say too much about them. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, their track record isn't great. However, we could say that the track record of the United States isn't great either. So it's really, at some level, the pot calling the kettle black. Now, we could argue that a world governed by Western powers is preferable to a world governed by 
a totalitarian government that perhaps presides in the East. However, in today's episode, I want to go through a fantastic report that pretty much started the entire sea change of opinion on this lab leak hypothesis. And that is a report by a man named Nicholas Wade, highly accoladed science writer, New York Times, 30 plus years, Science Magazine, Nature Magazine, I believe. And this guy is the real deal. And he put out a article on Medium, which is a platform that lets you self-publish. I don't know if that means that he wasn't able to publish this in the New York Times or any other publication. I would think that with his background, he would have shopped it around and, well, he had to self-publish it. At any rate, he put this article together and it is a very technical, long, and yet succinct presentation of what we know about the lab leak hypothesis and essentially making the case that it would be very difficult to believe that actually this was indeed a naturally occurring virus that somehow just sprung up in the city of Wuhan very, very near the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a lab in which they were studying these very types of viruses and indeed conducting gain-of-function research. So it seems that the cards in the deck are very much stacked against a natural progression of this virus, and I believe that Nicholas Wade is the very first person to really put the pieces together, and indeed his article was the precursor for a changing of opinions, even in the mainstream. And that's saying a lot because the mainstream media, as we know, if you've been following this podcast, is sponsored by pharmaceutical companies almost exclusively. Of course, the CIA is involved there, but let's not forget the CIA, the FDA, the pharmaceutical industries, big business in America was well, a pretty big revolving door there. These people are moving in and out between these companies and let's just say they're a bunch of interested parties that are in control of the narrative and even they have shifted or been perhaps forced to address Nicholas Wade in his writing. So what I want to do is go through a podcast, a brilliant podcast by a group called Unheard. They've done some great reporting on COVID that I've just become aware of and um, there's a talk between the host and Nicholas Wade and they get into some Great detail here, making it a, an audio and more digestible format. And I have to say, I, I virtually agree with almost everything that they talk about in this, um, in this podcast episode, but I am going to break it down and add additional context all throughout this. I'm going to comment on the entire podcast because it's just that riveting, this entire thing. And so I hope you enjoy this. I hope you get value from it. And... Um, I also insert a little clip from the WHO and some reporting from the Wall Street Journal as well, talking about the, and these are my words, the farce that was the WHO investigation in Wuhan, China, into the origins of the coronavirus, COVID-19. And we'll have to see if they continue to follow up. They say that they're going to follow up and do another part of this investigation, but, I mean, we'll have to see because it, the first part was not turning up anything. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Um, take a drink. 
the, the man who actually organised the original letter to Lancet magazine, which is a very high-status medical publication, um, who is also on the World Health Organization committee investigating the origins of the virus, actually was involved in procuring funding for virology research at Wuhan. Is, is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, his name is Peter Dashak, and he's president of the EcoHealth Alliance in New York, uh, which specializes in, in monitoring viruses uh, uh, the world over. And uh, the National Institutes of Health um, here in the U.S., gave large grants to Dr. Dashak, which he in turn passed on to the Wuhan Institute um, of Virology. And this wasn't talked about at the time where he was just offering his expert opinion that that Wuhan Institute of Virology was not involved in the original COVID-19 problem. Well, in the letter to the Lancet, which you mentioned, which later turned out had been organized by Dr. Dashak, uh, he, of course, had a, had a considerable interest in the outcome because if the lab, if the virus had escaped from the Wuhan lab, which he had funded, uh, he would be uh, uh, potentially to blame. Uh, but this conflict of interest was not declared in the Lancet letter, which moreover concluded, uh, we, we declare no conflict of interest. He's on the World Health Organization investigation committee, is that right? So it's not only that he's been arranging public statements that seek to dispel any doubt around the origins of the virus. He's actually doing the official investigation into it. Uh, yes, he has been a very central um, player all along. Uh, the WHO commission, uh, the membership was more or less controlled by the Chinese, which had sort of strong influence over the WHO and the conditions under which it would allow the commission into the country. And I think it's fair to say that you know the all of the membership was acceptable to the Chinese, including Dr. Dasher. Because that I remember that well. They there was they went and visited the lab, and then there was a press conference, and there was a declaration, what seemed to be quite immediate declaration, that the lab leak theory had been ruled out, as I recall. Um, we actually published a, an investigation into that, an article by a prize-winning investigative journalist called Ian Birrell, uh, and that was then censored on Facebook, saying that this, this article contains misinformation, uh, and all it was doing was questioning the validity of some of those World Health Organization findings. So this spreads very far in terms of the willingness not to ask these kind of questions. Well, that's right. Ian Birrell has been an outstanding reporter on this uh, issue. Facebook's behavior has been quite amazing. It, it, it's almost as if you're under the control of the Chinese government, because my article as well, uh, I don't know if that's still the case, but at least at one point, uh, if, if you pulled it up, you were given a similar message. You were then directed to a little Chinese propaganda um, site. I, I was quite, quite astounded that Facebook would behave in this way, and it um, sort of shows the severe limitations of its present system for uh, for addressing the content it carries. Well, folks, if your jaw hasn't dropped completely off your face after hearing that, then you're simply not living. You're a zombie. And there it is once again, these two talking about the same themes we've seen time and time again over the last year and a half after this world became totally twisted and turned it upside down. We have nefarious players, we have Facebook censorship, and we have corrupt organizations. 
Peter Dashig, this very wily guy, was actually found on a podcast talking about his love of coronaviruses before this thing actually was released upon the world, however it was released. And by the way, folks, this is a man who was published in The Lancet. He put together a paper for which he declared no conflicts of interest. He said that this virus simply could not have been man-made and could not have come from a lab. And yet, here he is in a podcast called This Week in Virology. This is taken from, I believe, September 2019. And, well, just take a drink and listen for yourself. Doesn't seem to add up, in my opinion. Well, so I, I think that coronaviruses are pretty good. I mean, you're a virologist, you know all this stuff. But they, you can um, manipulate them in the lab pretty easily. It's yeah. just spike protein drives a lot of what happens with the yeah. coronavirus. Uh, zoonotic risk. So you can get the sequence, you can build the protein, and we work with Ralph Barrick at UNC mm -hmm. to do this. Um, insert it into the backbone of another virus right. and do do some work in the lab. So you can get more predictive when you find a sequence. You've got this okay. diversity. Now, the, the logical progression for vaccines is if you're going to develop a vaccine for SARS, mm -hmm. people are going to use um, you know, pandemic SARS is there. Yeah, sure, sure. But let's try and insert some of these other yeah, sure. related and, and get a better vaccine. And I guess also knowledge of what's there. If you see something emerging, it'd give it a head start on making yeah. a vaccine or a therapeutic. That's true. And, and you know, better knowledge of where they are as well. So that yeah. you, can, you can put your money into this clinics that matter. And that's one of the big things that we've been trying to push. There's a lot of... Um, the word predict or the word, you know, the um, anticipating, forecasting pandemics, it, it, it doesn't mean you can stop them. That's the problem. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so what we're trying to do is say, on a global scale, if we can show where they most likely to come from, the species they most likely to originate mm -hmm. in, the people most likely to get affected, a, a global actor like WHO or a national uh, government can better allocate resources to the highest risk. It's pretty simple. <laughs> You know, that clip taken by itself wouldn't be so salacious if it were not for his participation in these rather large-scale disinformation campaigns. Let's call it what it is. He co-authored that Lancet paper saying that this would be impossible for the coronavirus to have been developed in a lab and declared no conflict of interest. I guess the people at the Lancet don't do too much of a deep dive into who they accept submissions from. By the way, I'm going to put together my own paper and submit it to the Lancet because it seems that their standards aren't quite being upheld. However, another thing about this Peter Daschig guy is he was on the WHO investigatory committee into the coronavirus origins. And as we heard, that committee turned up nothing. And in fact, here's a clip of them just briefly before we get back to Nicholas Wade and his excellent work. So take a drink of this, the WHO committee uh, investigating the origins of the coronavirus, which is then followed briefly by some journalism from the Wall Street Journal, who also happened to break this story through the mainstream. We did not uh, find evidence of large outbreaks of that could be related to uh, cases of COVID-19 prior to December 19 in Wuhan or elsewhere. The findings suggest that the laboratory uh, incidents 
um, hypothesis is uh, extremely unlikely. One of the first places that the WH team visited was the Huanan seafood market in downtown Wuhan, around which many of the first infections were identified. But they've also been to uh, frontline hospitals that treated some of those first infections. There were some parts of the trip which uh, appeared to be designed to sort of bolster China's position on how it uh, responded to the virus and um, its views on where it came from. For example, the team went to a museum in Wuhan that was set up to commemorate and celebrate the, uh, the response to the virus here. And then uh, in the last few days, they went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is, uh, houses a controversial laboratory, which has been at the center of, as yet, unsubstantiated uh, US assertions that the virus might have escaped uh, as a result of some kind of accident in, in the laboratory, maybe a leak or some, some other kind of slip up. China has dismissed this idea as being completely groundless, as has the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself. There are still some questions about what exactly members of the WHO team they are being allowed to see and what kind of data they've been given, level of access they've been getting that uh, they've been getting new data that they hadn't seen before. Their main goal was to uh, get a sense of how much work China has done in this investigation of the origins of, of the virus, to look at the data they have, and then to try to work out uh, you know, what the next steps should be. WHO team members have been very clear that they're not expecting to be able to identify the source of the virus from this trip and indeed some of them have warned that it could take many many months even years um, to be able to do that so the official from the who uh stating that as a result of this investigation they did not find any cases prior to december 2019 which is actually proven to be a complete lie or i guess this guy didn't have access to all the information which is totally plausible uh, the fact that the Chinese authorities have built a sort of a museum slash shrine to the first people who were called out the pandemic is a complete farce. We know that they've treated their people horribly and they certainly haven't held them up as heroes. That just seems to be something that they've done for public relations to confuse and bewilder those who are not paying attention. So anyway... There's a whole twisted web here. Peter Daschig, uh, the WHO, Dr. Fauci, EcoHealth Alliance, the Wuhan Lab of Virology. And it's all kind of twisted and weaving around. And we don't know exactly what happened yet, but Nicholas Wade continues... He's going to get into some of the science that goes a long way towards proving that this thing was indeed created by human hands in a lab. So take a drink of the fantastic Nicholas Wade. The first theory, the, the one that has been the consensus theory, is this natural evolution theory, which basically entails that this was a virus found in the bat population, which would have leapt onto humans via an intermediary species. Is that pretty much it? Uh, yes, because it's all by analogy with the two previous uh, epidemics. So in the case of SARS-1, the virus came from bats to uh, animals called civets, which are sort of sold in Chinese wet markets, and from civets it jumped to people. 
In the case of MERS, the intermediary host was uh, camels or dromedaries. Um, so the natural assumption was uh, that SARS-2 had reached the human population by this route. So how did they know in those previous epidemics that that's what had happened? Well, it's easy because the, the virus, when it makes this progression, leaves all kinds of telltale signs in the environment. I mean, first of all, there's the, the, the host population of bats, which you can uh, uh, find. Then uh, th there's an enormous trace left in, in the human serology. So hospitals have sort of surveillance records, and you can go back and test what people have been exposed to. So in the case of SARS-1, which is sort of very indicative, I think, you see the virus of picking up one mutation after another as it adapted itself first uh, to civets and, and then to humans. So at first it was a very sort of mild pathogen in humans, and then a few more mutations made it a stronger pathogen, and a, a few more, I think there's sort of 30 mutations altogether. By this time, it was a really strong pathogen. So you can track that retrospectively uh, in, in the human population. With the case of SARS-2, what has become increasingly clear, and it's increasingly bizarre, is that there is no such trace of, of SARS-2 emerging in the natural environment in the same pattern as SARS-1. And that, that WHO commission that went to Beijing, uh, as, as you mentioned, although it seemed at first sight propaganda victory for the Chinese because they kept on saying, oh, lab escape is ridiculous, we're hardly going to even consider it. What was also clear was that the Chinese had not been able to provide a shred of evidence in favor of the natural emergence hypothesis. So each month that goes by and you have no more evidence of natural emergence makes you have to consider the more strongly the lab escape hypothesis. I mean, folks, there's really not much to comment on here. Basically, the case is that there's no paper trail that the virus has left for us to investigate. There is no indication that this virus itself has evolved naturally. So we have the absence of information on one side and what nicholas is going to get into next is evidence that there is the presence of manipulation so it's really a two-pronged uh, analysis the absence of what we would expect to see in a natural viral progression as it evolves to be able to infect humans and as you'll hear coming up the presence of direct human manipulation. So let's take a drink. So in other words, if it was the normal natural emergence route as the previous epidemics, by now you would have expected either some trace in the virus itself or this intermediary species to have been identified and, and so far it hasn't. Uh, that's exactly true. So with, with SARS-1, I think we knew we, we could see the trace in the natural environment after three months and after MERS, it was after seven months we, we we found this evidence. So despite a presumably very intensive search by the uh, the Chinese, uh, unless they knew better than bother, um, we haven't found any of this to back up the natural emergence hypothesis for SARS-CoV-2. Is there anything else on that side of the equation that we should cover off? I mean, is there any other evidence for the natural emergence hypothesis? If we got a expert here who believes in it, what, what will he or she say in its favour? 
I think all, all that they can say is that it's a very plausible hypothesis. Uh, uh, the, the whole, and the whole idea rests on this single conjecture that it followed in the track of SARS-1 and MERS and, and the many other viruses that have jumped from animals. But what is clear is that there is no direct evidence for natural emergence. You know, I should quickly add, there's no direct evidence for lab escape either. But both, both these scenarios are plausible conjectures with no direct evidence supporting them. But you, you'd certainly expect a lot of it in the case uh, of, of, of SARS-2, and we have no direct evidence yet for natural emergence. So, friends, I want to just talk briefly, if I can, because I originally thought, yes, it is very plausible that, and I still think it is a plausible hypothesis that this did emerge naturally, although it seems rather bleak if you look at the science that Nicholas Wade has presented. And indeed, he's not a scientist, but he is one by proxy after having covered science as his daily profession for over 30, 40 years. So um, I think he's trustworthy in that sense. So we have to say, like, does Nicholas Wade have the um, impetus or desire to misguide people? Is he a plant himself? Certainly he wasn't published. As I mentioned before, he wasn't published. This article was something he put together on his own and published by himself on Medium. Uh, and so we have to really wonder what would be his motivation for obfuscating the truth. I don't think he has any, but I just want to be clear. It is the fact that we are relying on him and his accurate transmission of the data. So just keep that in mind um, if we want to be completely crystal clear and giving every side of the story the benefit of the doubt. I don't think he's lying. And I certainly look at the track record of one CCP and we can see that they have not been forthcoming on a number of issues. Their track record is absolutely piss poor when it comes to transparency and telling the truth on so many issues. So if I were to choose one to trust, it would have to be Nicholas Wade by far. Anyways, let's continue. They get into the man-made aspect of it. So let's take a drink. So let's turn to potential scenario number two then, which is that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, as its name suggests, is situated right in the middle of Wuhan in China, where the first examples of uh, COVID-19 were discovered, in some way synthesized this virus as part of an experiment. Is that the second theory? Uh, yes, it is. Um, and and it's, it's more precise than that, because... Um, we know exactly what they were doing, at least in general outline, because uh, they were funded by the National Institutes of Health via um, Peter Daszak. And there are uh, abstracts available, not, not, not the full grant proposal itself, but at least an abstract of what the, their grant was going to do, publicly available. And you can tell that they were, they were doing what virologists all around the world do. They were trying to, and this is perfectly legitimate uh, research, if one thinks it's worth it, um, they, they were trying to get a jump ahead of, to, uh, ahead of nature. They're trying to predict what couple of tweaks nature might need to make in an animal virus to make it a human pathogen. And to do that, they were 
trying to recapitulate this these steps in the lab, which of course is highly dangerous. If in fact you succeed, then you've got a dangerous pathogen. And the way they were doing this, they were taking um, various coronaviruses. Uh, this is the family of viruses to which SARS-CoV-2 belongs. And they were inserting into a, 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 a viral backbone the spike proteins that are that are what determines the host that the virus uh, can attack. So they were inserting one spike protein after another, trying to increase the infectivity of the virus until they had something that would be a human pathogen. So they were well on the track by the design of their experiments to create, if not SARS-CoV-2 itself, something very like it. You know what? I'm going to have to call BS on this whole concept of we want to get ahead of nature and be ready so we can prepare or whatever. It, it's nonsense. Obviously, what they want to do here is they want to sell a vaccine. Sure, they want to predict what a virus will do, but hey, and this is a wild rumination, but if they create the virus, well they might even be able to have that vaccine ready to go real quick. I wonder what kind of backdoor meetings have taken place. And you heard it from that video, Peter Daszak already saying something to this effect, that they know what exact parts of the virus to target with their vaccines by doing this kind of research. So it's not a very big moral leap to suggest that the very people who are creating the virus are also involved in perhaps profiting from this quote-unquote vaccine, which, you know, as we now know, has all sorts of problems attached with it. But be that as it may, let's continue. So this is a, t a technology and a process that uh, you mentioned there's American scientists involved who first developed it and then seem to have taught the um, scientists at the Wuhan Institute how to do it, and they then continued it. Is that right? So there's, it's almost an American-Chinese collaboration. Uh, yes, you could put it that way. Um, uh, I know, in a way, virologists sort of share all these techniques. They're, they're a sort of international community of scientists, and they will uh, share agents and, and knowledge and trading with each other. So uh, Dr. Zheng Li Shi is the uh, chief scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. She's, she, you refer, she's referred to as Bat Lady. Time. Oh, right. she's, she's well known in uh, China for uh, collecting these bat viruses, which she's been doing for 20 years or so. So um, it's not necessarily a pejorative um, term, it's just a sort of moniker she's acquired. So during the course of her, her work on these bat viruses, she went to work with Ralph Barrick uh, uh, in uh, North Carolina, who's the leading American expert on coronaviruses. And he had developed um, th this technique of uh, transferring um, spike proteins from one virus to another to make them more infective, you know, for the purpose of trying to predict future outbreaks, as I said. So, so she and Barrick published a paper in 2015 in which they generated an, a novel virus, um, scientists call it a chimera because it's a mixture of two genomes. They, they generated a chimera virus that um, had uh, the property of uh, infecting humans 
So there was lots of concern about this experiment at the time uh, and, and discussion of whether this was the right way to go. Barrick argued that, well, the benefits of doing this up outweigh the risks and we should be allowed to go ahead. They're actually creating a new virus in the lab and are seeing whether those, the virus infects human-like organisms. Is that, is that what's happening in the lab? Uh, yes, that's correct. They're, they're creating a novel virus that did not exist before in nature by combining the pieces of existing viruses together. And then, of course, you can't infect humans. That would be unethical. But they will test them either on cultures of human cells growing in the lab or on what they call humanized mice. So these are mice that have been genetically engineered so that the um, cells of their airways uh, uh, carry the very same uh, uh, protein called ACE2, which human cells carry, and which is the target of SARS-CoV-2. So these viruses are trained up on, on humanized mice. So based on this explanation, it seems like this is something that happens quite often. I mean, they were co-authoring studies about this very process, and I just don't understand why this whole hypothetical scenario wasn't detailed as plausible. Instead, it was detailed as total batshit, if you pardon the pun, nonsense. Even if this was an intentional release, you'd think that they would go the method of saying, whoops, we made a mistake. You'd think that Fauci and Peter Daszak and this so-called bat lady and the Chinese government and, I don't know, even maybe the American government, you'd think that the parties would convene and you'd think that they would say something like, hey, we made a mistake. Sorry about that. And we're going to make it right. Hey guys, it's me, Donnie, the host of Drinking from Human Skulls. The world is coming to an end, you don't have a job, and you're bleeding your parents dry. Pretty soon, everyone you know and love is going to die in nuclear war. That's why this is the perfect time to donate to Drinking From Human Skulls, a professional podcast. Just visit drinkingfromhumanskulls.com and click the donate button to get started. And if you can't afford to donate, click on anything that looks like an ad. Doing so will help me and your corporate overlords. Why let your money disintegrate in a mushroom cloud when you could support the Drinking From Human Skulls podcast? Now, let's get back to the show. If there weren't, you know, billions of dollars being made, perhaps I could give everyone the benefit of the doubt and say somebody made a mistake, they're too sheepish to admit it, but, you know, we'll figure it out one day. It just seems that nobody's owning up to this. And this thing has killed millions of people. Although I do think that the response has been overblown. I do think that the um, actual danger of this particular virus has been over-exaggerated. But there has been quite a cost, and indeed a psychological cost, if anything. So why is it that nobody's accepting responsibility? It doesn't quite make sense, but they'll continue, so let's keep listening. So in the lab leak scenario, how would the virus have left the lab? Well, it would have left. The, it could very easily have left the lab uh, 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 because of the safety conditions under which 
Dr. Xi was working. So I should say in her defense, she was following the same international rules for working with coronaviruses uh, as, as all other virologists do. So lab safety is sort of measured in three levels, depending on the number of, sort of safety precautions you have from one to four. BSL-1 is the, uh, is the easiest laxist to work in, and BSL-4, that's where you see people in sort of space suits, uh, space suits uh, walking around these bubbles over their heads. So virologists don't really like to work in BSL-4 conditions. It's very sort of cumbersome. Everything takes twice as long. And, and the rules for working with coronavirus were really, you might think, quite lax. So if you were working with SARS-1 or MERS, which we know, of course, human pandemics, you had to use the third level up, BSL-3. If you were working with just any other coronavirus, whatever manipulations you were doing to it, you could work in BSL-2. So BSL-2 just means well, you wear a, a, a uh, you wear gloves and, and a coat and uh, you put up a notice saying biohazard and you work under hoods. That's about it. It's not, it, I mean, it, it's sort of roughly very effective. It's not completely effective. And do you have confirmation from the Chinese scientists that that was the safety level they were working under? Um, yes, in several ways. Firstly, Dr. Xi describes in her experiments what safety level she was working under and and at least some, maybe much or all of this work was in BSL level two. And moreover, Dr. Xi herself uh, told Science magazine in an interview she, that all her work was done in BSL two or three. Well, folks, I'm sure that this bat lady is a real nice, fantastic kind of gal. But even though she's operating under these quote unquote guideline driven safety protocols, level two, whatever. You know what? The protocols are one thing and the execution is very much another. And I just, I'm sorry, listen, I've been to China multiple times, multiple locations, and it's not uncommon to see things just broken AF all over the place. Sidewalks completely chewed up in disrepair, um, everyone's building wires hanging off of it, telephone wires, internet wires, exposed wires, just everything broken, little bits of aluminum foil covering up holes in the wall. It's just stuff that you couldn't even imagine. All right. And these are the areas in which they are executing these kinds of studies. Now, it's not a huge leap to think, okay, well, if the sidewalk in front of this virology clinic is completely busted up and broken, is it fair to say that maybe there's a bit of a lax attitude that is pervasive in this society, in this culture? For a lot of reasons, not because people are lackluster by default, but there's a lot of reasons and perhaps the very same reasons that a sidewalk is in disrepair also could be the same reasons that a lab is a little bit lax in how they execute. In my mind, as soon as they recognize someone's gotten ill, they lock the whole damn thing down. In my mind, that's fairly easy to control, and yet, it wasn't controlled. Obviously, not even close. And if it was true that those few people 
who worked at the lab got sick and spread the virus to the entire world, well, then that's a goddamn bombshell. I mean, it could be more complicated than that, but who knows? We don't really know. It seems to me that we don't really have a super strong grasp of how these things spread. We know the symptoms are created as a, as a vector vehicle for these viruses to spread. You sneeze more, you cough more, you get it into the air, it spreads that way. I don't think we know exactly how much virus you need to get sick. I don't think we know exactly how much protection a healthy person has against a virus. There's this whole talk of asymptomatic transmission, which may or may not be bullshit. Nobody can seem to get a consensus on this. And yet, what we do know is that if you do lock these viruses up and prevent them from coming into contact with people with actual safe protocols, then supposedly this is no problem at all. I imagine there are many labs doing this kind of work in every country. I don't think it's just happening in China, but it is not surprising, and I'm sorry to beat up on the Chinese here, it's not surprising to me at all that they were the ones to screw up and let it leak out. And remember, folks, this is the culture and this is the country that makes no bones about stealing intellectual property. They have no scruples about it. Every single large corporation is by default state-sponsored and it's not like every single chinese person is stealing all the time but if you exist in a culture where you know every company that you could potentially work for is engaging in these practices well it's pervasive well they go on to talk about this dr xi a little bit more and let's take a drink and listen shall we so she did um, submit to a question and answer interview with science magazine uh, didn't she where she gave quite legalistic but extended answers to some of those questions that you pose. And for example, she was very clear that SARS-CoV-2, they had done a genomic sequence of it, which they themselves submitted to the World Health Organization in early January of last year. They were sure at that moment that they had not come in contact with it before. They had not done any experiments with it before in the lab. Uh, and she even goes so far as to say she has not done any of these synthesized virus experiments on viruses which have not been detailed and recorded. So she's quite comprehensive in saying this is not true. What's your reaction to those statements? Well, I think you have to understand her statements against the background that the, the Chinese authorities are, are controlling very carefully all information that, that comes out. So basically, they've, uh, they've put a seal on all information, all the, all the Wuhan Institute of Virology's uh, records uh, are sealed, all Dr. Xi's experiments are sealed, what viruses she was working on, um, all Chinese databases uh, concerning uh, bat viruses uh, have been made inaccessible. So you could say, well, this is the way authoritarian regimes behave anyway, but I think there is a there's a sort of pattern to what the Chinese authorities are doing. And this means because they're locking down all, inf all information in general, I think it's not illogical to assume that all the information they do let out is released for a purpose. Uh, and that overall purpose is to 
deny that lab escape happened and to point people towards natural emergence. So I think, uh, you know, Dr. Shi is in a sort of terrible position and I, and I, I hesitate to say she's, she's, she's lying, but I, I think it, everyone can see that, that she's probably not absolutely free in what she says. It has to conform to, to the narrative the Chinese authorities are trying to project. So Nicholas believes that she wouldn't even be able to say what she wanted to say if she was able to say it. So the thing is, I would take it a step further than that. I would go so far as to say that the people who are put in these positions um, are handpicked and they're hand-selected to be very, um, I guess, submissive to coercion. If you choose the right people and you put them into positions of power and you perhaps have this environment where they know that if they take the wrong move, make the wrong step, say the wrong thing, that their family will disappear and they'll basically be erased from the planet. Well, it becomes pretty easy to lie to Science Magazine in those circumstances, doesn't it? I mean, it's a little morbid, but would people actually be honest? What if this woman did do the right thing? What if she contacted someone from a foreign government and said, I have information, but I require asylum for myself and several other people. This could be some pretty good information for you. Is that an offer that's been put out there? If I were one of the world leaders in one of these countries, these Western countries, America, Canada, Australia, etc., I would definitely extend that offer. Because as long as this lady's in China, as long as she's under the thumb of the CCP, there's no way that the climate is going to allow her to tell the truth. It just doesn't compute. So we're not going to get straightforward answers unless there are creative solutions. Perhaps an olive branch from one of the Western powers. Asylum? Why not? Hey guys, it's me, Donnie. Head to drinkyfromhumanskulls.com to join my mailing list. I'll send you my newest episodes and my hottest selfies. See you there. I just can't get over this notion that the people in power at the NIH, specifically Fauci, wouldn't be a little more skeptical of the information coming from these Chinese virologists. Certainly, Nicholas Wade has pointed out that they can't be trusted. It's not even possible for them to tell the truth if they value their lives. And yet, here we have, again, Senate testimony where Senator Kennedy is now grilling Dr. Fauci Asking a very simple and straightforward question, and Fauci can't seem to instill confidence with his answers, yet again, flubbering and blubbering, as he's asked a simple question. Can we trust the Chinese scientists? Take a drink. Uh, Dr. Fauci, I believe you have testified that, uh, that uh, you didn't give any money to the Wuhan lab to conduct gain-of-function research. Is that right? That is correct. How do you know they didn't lie to you? Excuse me, sir? How do you know they didn't lie to you and use the money for gain-of-function research anyway? Well, we've seen the results of the experiments that were done and that were published and that the viruses that they um, 
studied are on public databases now. So none of that was gain of function. So how, how do you know they didn't do the research and uh, not put it on their website? There's no way of guaranteeing that, but in our experience with grantees, including Chinese grantees, which we've had interactions with for a very long period of time, they're very competent, trustworthy scientists. I'm not talking about anything else in China. I'm talking about the scientists that you would expect that they would abide by the conditions of the grant, which they've done for the years that we've had interactions. So you don't think the Chinese would lie to you? Well, when you say the Chinese, the Chinese are a rather broad group. I know the scientists that we've dealt with have been trustworthy. Mm -hmm. You think all the scientists uh, have told the truth in terms of the origin of the Wuhan virus and not been influenced by the Communist Party of China, do you? I don't have enough insight into the Communist Party in China to know the interactions right. between them and the scientists, sir. Right. So this goes on in circles for several more minutes, but he said it himself. He doesn't have enough insight into the workings of the CCP to judge the situation. And anybody who knows the basics of how it works is every organization is governed by the CCP. Private business doesn't exist. It is all required that there are agents working inside every institution. And of course, a virology lab certainly would have several connected agents working inside of it. So for Fauci to say he doesn't have any idea, wouldn't, oh gosh, I had no idea. The scientists were certainly trustworthy. Folks, this is either a lie or he is absolutely too naive for the job. I don't buy it. I think he's lying. There's just no doubt about it. How could you not know that? If you're a government official, you have to believe that this guy's getting briefed. It must be the case that he's privy to information. And so to not know the basics of the CCP government and how they operate and how every organization must, by law, have officials inside it documenting and presiding over their operations. I just don't find it plausible in the least. But this is just classic Fauci, deny, 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 deny. And it's just looking more and more like this guy is a behind-the-scenes evildoer. Because none of it makes any sense. It's almost as if he's the greatest actor known to man. And again, it's either that or he is absolutely unfit for the job. But anyway, the interview continues and now they begin to speculate about the cover-up and perhaps is there one, isn't there one, and why would there be one? So let's continue. Take a drink. So if, Nicholas, obviously this is a big if, and as you say, there isn't conclusive evidence for either of these theories at the moment. They are just conjecture. But if it is true, what would that then mean? That would mean some sort of cover-up within the Chinese administration. Would that mean a cover-up even beyond China's borders, do you think? Um, yes and no. I mean, to your first question, yes, the, the, the Chinese authorities are clearly covering up evidence. They refuse to let the WHO Commission see anything of value. Um, so in the sort of plainest sense of the term, they are 
covering it up, covering up whatever it is they want to remain concealed. Now, I don't think anyone else is is taking positive steps to cover things up. Um, it, it's just that so virologists themselves all around the world are not sort of particularly keen on the idea that that their technology is at the root of a, a really terrible pandemic. So very naturally, they're not, they're not inclined to think that the virus could have escaped from a lab. And when these these two very influential letters came out in early last year, the Lancet one that you mentioned and another in Nature Medicine, this was just a sort of handful of people, authors of, of them, but no other virologist stepped forward to dispute that. No virologist said, well, we, we should certainly consider lab escape since this is a logical possibility. Uh, and to do so would have been very dangerous for them because you know, unfortunately on academic campuses for all kinds of reasons, we don't have free speech anymore. And for virologists, they depend for their careers on being awarded grants by other virologists. So the way grants are distributed both in the US and the UK basically is you have a, a peer review, committees of, of expert virologists who review the grant applications from other virologists. So if you step out of line and, and if you say, well, I think this virus may have escaped from the lab, you know, good luck on getting your grant renewed at the next review period. So that is the reason why I think why virologists have been so silent. I got to say, these two are really getting me all hot and bothered with the way that they have put the pieces together. Of course, who would want to bite the hand that feeds of course, all these virologists, they're funding this, they're taking this grant money, they're doing this over there. They have these lower level scientists who want to move up the ladder. They see where the money comes from. They're working in these labs. They think that they could move up. They could get a job with this pharmaceutical company. I'm sure there's a revolving door there as well. So obviously... These people are in the business of doing research that supports, number one, their access to grant money, and number two, perhaps supports their credibility in a way that they can furnish future opportunities for themselves and make money along the way. It's just like my favorite old saying, follow the money and see what you get. And it looks like in this case, you get a global pandemic that despite the fact that I think it was completely overreacted to, caused a lot of headaches for a lot of people and caused a lot of people their lives. Were they going to die anyways? Perhaps. Not in every case. And it really becomes very nefarious when it's either malicious intent or gross negligence, both of which are not being admitted to, that have caused this pandemic to happen? Should there be accountability? Well, it's kind of blurry because all this money, all this funding, different governments involved, we really don't know. Dr. Fauci hasn't been clear. His organization, the NIH, is the one at the top that's giving a lot of this money out. This Peter Daszak guy is very shady. He's got all sorts of connections. Again, I think that they can definitely fund their own gain-of-function research. 
in China without grant money. But at the same time, it just really doesn't make any sense. Maybe that money is, in a sense, a way to provide access for them, a way for them to infiltrate. That could be it. But again, why is that not being detailed? Is that classified information? Because I just, I want to believe that these people are smarter. I want to believe these people aren't evil. But that's what it's looking like. It's looking like they're either completely stupid or extremely nefarious. Either one is not good. I guess that's not the whole reason though, is it? So in a part, as you say, there's a kind of professional loyalty or slash keenness to remove from the scenario uncomfortable questions that might prove awkward or embarrassing. Then there's this other question, which is politics, because Donald Trump famously was quite keen on the lab leak thesis. Um, he said so much that out there, he said that he believes it to be true quite a few times. Uh, and so suddenly it became a kind of Donald Trump conspiracy theory to ask that, those questions. And it became the sensible person's you know, scientific consensus view to start, steer away from those questions. Is that fair, do you think? Yes, that's exactly correct. I mean, it's extremely, un it's extremely unfortunate that the issues become politicized. Uh, and and it's, so, so, so it's so ridiculous because politics has absolutely nothing useful to contribute to this issue. It's a scientific issue and should be seen as such. But you're right, as soon as, as Trump said that, that politicized it. So if you're on the left, you're against uh, lab escape. And if you're on the right, you're more open to it. You know, I'm sure the way that started was that if you look at what the intelligence services in the US have said, both during the Trump administration and during the Biden administration, they have said very simply that lab escape cannot be ruled out. They've been very consistent. So I'm sure that's what they said to Trump, lab escape cannot be ruled out. Uh, he then twisted that into saying, well, it was it definitely came from the Wuhan lab. I think that's how it all started. It's very regrettable. It's now changing somewhat. Do you notice that? It feels like in the last couple of weeks, some senior credible scientists um, have been coming on board with wanting to investigate this theory more. Do you feel like the tide is turning in, in favor of a lab leak hypothesis? Um, yes, I, I do. And the, the letter in science from the 18 scientists, uh, uh, I think that will start to, to change things a lot. Um, I think it's gradually dawning on people that the, the, the WHO Commission came back empty-handed with respect to the natural emergence hypothesis. So they're beginning to see there's no evidence there. And however plausible that may have been to begin with, it's, in, it's increasingly less plausible month by month. So that, that, I think, is contributing to a turn of opinion, though it's still highly polarized. I, I, I've been very disappointed that the the, the left has paid no attention to my article, whereas I keep getting requests from the right. I would much prefer to, that all sides were interested. So this is where it gets even more murky, in my opinion, because I, I don't know if it's necessarily that the left really just hates Donald Trump so much that they're trying to push against anything that he says. I think it's that there are people in positions of power who have co-opted this concept of the left and the Democratic Party and are using Donald Trump as a sort of figurehead to go against, and therefore anything that he said, they would go against that. But perhaps even further than that, they would even 
use this constant excuse as a way to push narratives that they wanted to push. This is all totally a conspiracy theory in my mind, but it just seems to me that the left has been co-opted by some mysterious forces. This whole woke narrative, this whole anti-Donald Trump thing, there's this Antifa organization that's doing all sorts of weird stuff last year that has somehow quieted down this year. I think that they used Donald Trump as an enemy to get what they wanted and who they are exactly is, I don't know. It's difficult to answer. But there's certainly something going on behind the scenes here. I don't think this is just simply a political division. I think actually more and more that political division is something that is manipulated by these bigger powers. I don't know who they are. I don't really get into that. You know, oh, it's the globalists. Oh, it's the Rockefellers. I don't get into that kind of stuff because I can't prove it. But I know that there's something weird going on here. There's one piece of evidence that we haven't talked about. Uh, which is what you refer to as the nearest thing to a smoking gun in favor of the lab leak hypothesis. And it's quite technical, uh, but I think we should try and go into it to share it with our viewers. This is to do with the evidence in the genes of the virus itself that seem to suggest human engineering as opposed to natural evolution. What is it? Well, uh, in the middle of the gene for the spike protein, there's a little insert called the furin cleavage site. And it's very important for the virus when it attacks a human cell uh, with one part of its spike protein. The other part then has to uh, help the virus merge with the, the membrane of the human cell. But the other part can't do that unless the junction between the two halves of, of spike uh, is cut. So there's a natural protein on the surface of human cells called furin, which has quite a different purpose, but it will cut any protein it sees that has a particular sequence of amino acids. And the, the, the genetic sequence that specifies these amino acids is present right there between the two parts of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So the reason this sort of sticks out like a sore thumb is that is that no other member of, of the SARS-CoV-2's uh, uh, coronavirus family has this furin cleavage site. So the, the way viruses uh, sort of acquire new properties in, in general is either by mutation, which is very unlikely in this case because so many mutations will be involved, or it's by something called recombination. So that happens when two viruses happen to infect the, the same cell. And as their uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear material is, is duplicated, viruses get assembled accidentally with bits and pieces of, of the other virus. So this is a way in which so properties can, um, uh, can be exchanged or, or among a family of viruses. But what you cannot acquire by recombination is a property that your, your virus family does not possess. And because no other beta coronavirus of the SARS-CoV-2 family, they're called Sarbeco viruses, has a furin cleavage site. Therefore, it could, you have to consider the possibility that it was inserted in a lab. And in fact, 
virologists have known for years that the way to soup up a virus and make it really infective is to add, is to insert a furine cleavage site. I find it very, 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 very disheartening that the virology community at large is not more forthcoming with their analysis on what exactly happened here. And I guess we just have to follow the money. Why would it be? Again, I've already mentioned this, but if we consider that virologists want to make money in their profession, then they wouldn't want to piss off the grantees. They wouldn't want to piss off the governments. They wouldn't want to piss off um, the pharmaceutical companies. They wouldn't want to bite the hand that feeds. They wouldn't want to arouse the suspicions of their peers. And I think that a lot of these scientist types also lack that charismatic aptitude. They are kind of people who follow steps and they follow things in an order. I think that if you're going to be a good scientist, you're going to be a person who replicates and takes orders and follows things through a process. And I don't think that those skills developed over time necessarily lend themselves to what you need to be able to do in order to call out a criminal situation. If this is actually a criminal situation, we don't know for sure. Let's be clear on that. But it seems very, very likely that this was either a criminal situation directly or a negligent situation. Whether this was released intentionally or whether this was accidentally released, I think both are highly plausible. I can tell you that I'm sorry to say I don't think even if they had these lab standards in place, I feel utterly certain that there's a million different ways that they can screw this up. It's just it's China is a culture of shortcuts at the moment. And if you look at their history, their architecture, their arts, their poetry, their writing, it would indicate that there is a difference in today's society in China. There are brilliant pieces of art. There are brilliant works of architecture from the Chinese culture. So I don't think that this is something innate. I think it's because of the world that the CCP has created. And look, it's not even like I could blame the CCP directly for this. It's been sort of a progression. They've been up against it after World War II. It was quite a horrendous time. There's always been a different way of thinking in the East. And in order to adapt to a Western-dominated world, they've had to do so in a way that indeed forces them to take these shortcuts. It's not that I can't understand the CCP or that I would necessarily blame them for their tactics. I think they're in a tough spot, and I definitely don't want to apologize for them, but we really got to analyze why it is that they behave the way they do. And so that's a bit of a rant, but I'm just trying to get people to understand that it's not as simple as Chinese government bad, therefore this happened. I think a lot of people, especially in the American Senate, the Republican Party, for example, are trying to vilify China as a country, although they are careful to say the CCP Chinese government more and more they're being careful to say that. But at the same time, I think there is this desire to press forward with aggressive actions against China as a whole because of the missteps of their government. And look, of course, Chinese officials know that if they admit to any wrongdoing here, it's going to put them really behind the eight ball on the world stage. From their perspective, they believe that they're in number two spots with eyes on number one. And if they admit that they accidentally released this virus upon the world, 
well, they're going to be taken down quite a few steps. Relations will sour, trade will sour, and indeed China's entire economic plan of growth will fail. So that's why they're not being honest. And look, they don't have a track record of being honest anyways. So it's almost like you want to take that track record and amplify it a hundred times. That's the situation we're in right now. They're buying off associations like the WHO. They're buying off officials worldwide in different countries. Fauci obviously is somehow involved in this. Who knows? But something is amiss. And I wouldn't expect that China is going to be the one to break and say, oops, sorry. Let me see what we can do to make this right. That's not going to happen. So we're left with this big dilemma of what to do and how to investigate. And I really don't have any answers. Of course, I'm just a podcaster here in Vancouver, Canada, a dope with a microphone. But I also don't think that the people in charge really have solutions. And I actually don't think that the people in charge really have grasp of the information in order to make the right decisions. But, you know, this podcast continues the one with Nicholas Wade. And let's keep listening because because the story just continues to evolve. So is there no way that SARS-CoV-2 could have acquired a furin cleavage site naturally? Well, you can't be as absolute as that because viruses are always doing unexpected things. I mean, this is sort of, uh, evolution's ways or billions of billions of variations and natural selection will pick the one that works that often to our our eyes seem sort of very unlikely. So you can't rule out the possibility that somehow, um, somehow the, the fear and cleavage was acquired naturally. Um, but it's, it's just one of the extra implausibilities that you need to explain on the lab emergence theory. You've got all these other things to explain. Why does it break out at the, you know, the, the doorstep of the World Institute of Virology? Why was it perfectly adapted to human uh, cells right from the start, unlike all other viruses? Why does it have a furin cleavage site? So there are all these improbabilities that you need to uh, uh, explain, and this is just another one. So is there any evidence that Dr. Xi and her group inside the Wuhan Virology Institute were inserting furin cleavage sites into other viruses to make them more infective with humans? Well, not specifically, but I believe there's at least one paper in which Dr. Shi has inserted a furin cleavage site. I mean, she and her colleagues certainly knew about this technology. I mean, it's sort of, it's not, it's old hat technology, it's widely known. You insert a furin cleavage site and you want to soup up a virus. And she certainly could have done it. We don't know that she did. So SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, contains this feature then that is, makes it particularly successful at attacking humans, which is something that we know earlier labs and earlier scientists have done in order to try and make a virus more effective. And that, in your mind, is quite a compelling piece of evidence in favour of the idea that it's a lab leak virus. Uh, yes, it's an important piece of evidence. Um, it's by itself, it's certainly not proof, uh, but it's certainly something that will catch the attention of virologists and they will recognise that it's something that needs to be explained one way or another. So having reviewed all of this evidence, Nicholas, you've got your science journalist hat on. What do you think happened? Well, as I say in the article, there's no direct evidence for either theory, so there's no proof for either theory. 
Um, but, but if you take the available evidence and say which theory explains it better, well, on present evidence, in my view, lab escape explains it better. So that's what I think is the more probable outcome based on what we know so far. Nicholas Wade, thank you so much for talking us through it. You're very welcome. Thanks for your interest. Indeed. Thanks for our interest. Well, um, we could have used this information months and months ago. Of course, it was available months and months ago. It just took um, a genius curator like Nicholas Wade to put it together. So we do thank him again. And I just wonder, will this fall on deaf ears or will this produce results? Certainly, we've seen a lot of action, and we're going to cover this in a future episode, a lot of things heating up in the Senate. Players like, of course, Rand Paul, ever the consistent COVID quote-unquote denier, or should we say Fauci denier, really bringing him up, putting him on the stand, and roasting him. So we'll cover that in a future episode as well, very soon. Suffice to say, there is a lot of layers to this. I won't give you all the details now. I do beg you, please, to share this podcast if you found it valuable. I do beg you, please, to subscribe in your podcast app. Please join my mailing list at drinkingfromhumanskulls.com. That's just another way to get notified about future episodes. And it'll help me to gauge the interest in this podcast and how many people are actually listening. And I do beg you as well to simply visit the website www.drinkingfromhumanskills.com. And if you do have the means, please do donate as well. Uh, I am currently working two jobs to support my family. Um, don't worry, it's not like I'm working at 7-Eleven and um, Starbucks, but I still am working two jobs to be able to afford a house. This is the plight of a poor, sad podcaster. Well, this has been me, Donnie, and I do appreciate it, and I thank you so much for listening. I'll leave you with a song. Of course, I'm running out of decent songs of my own creation, so I might have to come up with just a regular outro music. But until I do that, um, take a drink of this beauty. <laughs>